Well, let's go ahead and uh, open our Bibles and, uh, to Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And uh, we are going to move on. And it's been a couple of weeks since uh, we were in the Song of Solomon, so hopefully we can bring, bring ourselves up to speed here. But as I mentioned earlier uh, this evening, that this Friday is Valentine's Day. And I thought it was interesting that Consumer Reports estimate that over $18 billion will be spent to celebrate love. And uh, that's what this series is all about, right? It's a, a celebration of, of true love. And so uh, listen to just a few statistics about how that money is going to be spent this Valentine's Day. 244 million roses are grown for Valentine's Day. 151 million cards will be exchanged. Hallmark has some 1,400 variations of uh, Valentine's cards to choose from. Uh, an estimated $1.6 billion will be spent on candy. That's a lot of chocolate. And then jewelry, of course, a popular gift on Valentine's Day, $4.4 billion will be spent on diamonds and gold and silver. I mean, this is, the, this is, uh, this is when you want to be a jeweler, right? This is a good time of year uh, to be that. But I was thinking the fact that we invest so much time and money every year in this holiday that we call Valentine's Day is evidence of how important it is to us human beings to find and cultivate a love relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And it's almost like we live for this. And I think it's just a reminder that God created us to be relational beings, to be sexual beings, with the intent that the vast majority of us would grow up and get married. Now, granted, God sovereignly calls some people to remain single uh, throughout their lives, and he also commends singleness in the Bible. And I think it's important as we're going through the Song of Solomon that we uh, are sensitive to those that maybe God uh, has given the gift of singleness and so there's a couple of verses just to be reminded of. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, talks about eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this, let him accept it. In other words, hey, there's some people that just choose to remain single to the glory of God, and uh, it does bring great honor and glory to God. I think it's also important to remember uh, in both Matthew and uh, Matthew 22, Mark chapter 12, uh, that Jesus makes it very clear that in the end, in eternity, we won't be married. No one will be married. Uh, I think we'll know our spouse, but we'll no longer be in that marriage relationship, according to Jesus, right? Uh, there will be no, we'll be more like the angels uh, in that regard. And so in some sense, a lifetime of singleness um, may be difficult to endure for some, but guess what? Uh, we're all going to be the same when we get to heaven, right? And, uh, and I think that's a, a great consolation for some who may struggle with their singleness. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually commends a singleness and encourages singleness. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse eight. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. And at the time, Paul, uh, as best we can tell, was either um, not married or he had been widowed. Uh, that his spouse had died, his wife had died, but the point is he was single. Uh, whether that was by choice or by the death of his wife, we're not sure. Uh, but then he goes on in, in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, in other words, not to tell you you can't get married, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And so, in some ways, being single is an added blessing. Um, there's great privilege in that. 
Um, there's great opportunity in that that uh, married people don't experience and don't enjoy um, because they're distracted. And uh, single people can be undistracted in their devotion to the Lord. And I think that passage is particularly applicable to young people uh, who maybe are chomping at the bit to get married, right? And say, hey, hey, time out. Don't rush that because right now you're in a very unique stage in your life where you can be undistracted in your devotion to the Lord. And it's not always going to be that way. So max out this time of singleness in your life. And it's a great message to young people, uh, young people by, by teenagers, young uh, professionals maybe who have not yet gotten married, um, to really uh, find great joy um, uh, in, in being single and being freed up to serve the Lord in very unique ways that will not always be that way. Well, having said that, I think the blessings of being married is the norm for most people. That's why the Bible has so much to say about marriage. In fact, I was uh, uh, really appreciating uh, Danny Aiken, who is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary over in the Wake Forest area. That's kind of the sister school to uh, Southwestern or to Southern Seminary, where Al Mohler is the president down in Louisville. Um, but this is what he's written in his commentary on the Song of Solomon. I think it's a really good summary. Again, just to kind of bring us up to speed, because we've been a couple weeks off here, just to remind you why the book of Song of Solomon is so helpful for us as Christians. He said this, quote, God is so interested in and committed to the intimate, romantic, and sexual aspects of marriage that he gave us an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the subject. It is called the Song of Songs. This side of heaven, outside of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the best thing going is marriage. When we do marriage God's way, it's great. It's awesome. It's wonderful. The Song of Songs teaches us how to do marriage God's way, and it leaves nothing out. A beautiful love song. It portrays the deep, genuine love that a man and woman should enjoy in marriage. It teaches us that a successful marriage requires commitment and involves work, but that it is worth every investment we make. He says the book celebrates the joys of physical, intimate, sexual love. Sex is good. It is, it is God's gift. It should be enjoyed and enjoyed often. Sexual attraction is inevitable. It is what God intended. But unless we follow God's plan, we will miss out on his best and suffer the painful and tragic consequences in the process. The Song of Songs explains the purpose and place of sex as God designed it. When we make love the way God planned, we enjoy the security of a committed relationship experience the joy of unreserved passion, and discover the courage to give ourselves completely to another person in unhindered abandonment. Very well said. And in fact, he went on to give a list of biblical principles governing sex. And I thought it was such a good list in his commentary that we made a copy of it and we put it on the back table there. So um, if you didn't get one on the way in, make sure you grab one on the way out. And uh, just read through these, and I don't think any of them will be a shock to you or anything new that you don't already know, but I think it's always a good reminder uh, to, to, to see exactly what are the biblical principles regarding sex. Now, uh, not only would I commend this little sheet to you from Danny Aiken, but uh, this is uh, probably my favorite book, I think one of the most uh, effective little tools uh, that we have in our resource center. It's called Biblical Principles of Sex by Robert D. Smith. He's a, he's a medical doctor, uh, and he just does a great job um, just walking through the scriptures and just outlining, hey, what are the basic principles of sex? Uh, this is a book that uh, I know that uh, Kel and I have read a, a number of occasions just to be reminded of what the scripture teaches. This is, in fact, our favorite uh, wedding present. We, we will lo love to give this book to uh, newlyweds and uh, we'll tell them, hey, don't leave this with the blender and the toaster and all the other things on your table of presents. Stick this in your, in your briefcase or your suitcase on, as you head out on your honeymoon because uh, this will be a great little resource uh, for you to read together on the plane or you know, at the hotel or out on the beach or wherever you end up going. This is a great little tool. So I want to just commend this to you if you've never read this. We've got these in the resource center. Hopefully we've got enough if... We have a run on them tonight. Everyone wants to run over there and get this book. But uh, again, not only good for you, but also good to hand out uh, to, to other people. So um, with, with, with that, uh, I want to return to where we left off in, in the Song of Solomon. Uh, 
And here we have King Solomon again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget that, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he used very figurative, poetic language to portray his relationship with his one true love. He's the beloved uh, and she's his darling. And so he tastefully and discreetly described the romantic attraction and anticipation between two lovers leading up to marriage and the sexual intimacy and pleasure that God intended for a man and woman to enjoy within marriage. And we said that this is a veiled romance, hence the picture, right, of the veil uh, over this couple. It's a veiled romance. And so tonight we're going to look at the second major division in Solomon's uh, Song of Songs, the best song he ever wrote. We've already looked at uh, verses 1, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse uh, 7. And tonight we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5. Let me just read it for you, um, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag in the mountains of Bether. On my bed... On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. The watchman who makes the rounds in the city found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found whom my soul loves, I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her, conce- of, of her who conceived me. Verse five, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field that you will not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. Hopefully you recognize the bookends here. Uh, chapter two, verse seven uh, he said the same exact thing. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this uh, tricky and touchy uh, book uh, that you've left for us in the pages of Scripture. I pray that we would do a good job tonight as we seek to understand its meaning and its application, Lord, that you would be honored. Uh, by the things that are said and thought about and discussed tonight. And I just pray that you would use this to continue to enhance uh, the marriages in our church. Lord, that they would be all that you intended them to be for your honor and glory. And I also even pray for the young people who are here who anticipate getting married someday. Lord, that they would uh, be even more committed after they hear this message to wait uh, for you to provide the right person at the right time and uh, that they would honor you uh, with their purity until they get married, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I must say that as I was reading this passage and studying this passage, that I couldn't help but remember uh, the day that I proposed to Kelly, because this is the passage uh, that I used to propose to her. And uh, I think some of you have heard me tell this story, but... Uh, I have to really go back to the first date uh, for you to get the proposal thing, right? Uh, so uh, it was spring, uh, spring banquet time at the Master's College, 
And uh, I was, uh, you know, everybody was saying I needed to go to the spring banquet, but I didn't really know anybody, didn't have any desire to go with anybody. In fact, they actually had the Facebook out, okay, the actual book. My roommate was going through and saying, how about her, how about her, how about her? And they were trying to set me up with these girls that I was going to ask to the spring banquet. Well, I didn't really care to go. And so one night uh, I was sitting in the cafeteria just eating my food really fast, rushing to get to an evening class. And I looked across the crowded dining hall and there she was. Kelly was over there sitting at this table with a group of the, uh, the soccer players. She was hanging out with all these soccer players. But man, she looked cute that night. And I thought, man, I want to ask her to the spring banquet. So I went back to my roommate. I said, hey, I think I found out found, found who I'm going to ask to the spring banquet. And I thought, but man, it's kind of dumb. It's like only two weeks away. And she probably hasn't had time to get a dress or anything. And this, I got I to make it good. I got I to make sure this is like a memorable ask so that she can't say no, Right. So that night, we got a ladder, and we went out uh, at, at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. We found this ladder, and we put it up to her second-story window in her dorm, and I found, I, I had borrowed some lipstick. Trust me, it wasn't mine, guys, okay? I borrowed some lipstick from a, a, a girlfriend of mine, another girl that was a friend, not a girlfriend, girl, right? Friend that was a girl. And uh, so I climbed up, and I wrote on the window, I said, Kelly... Could I have the privilege of escorting you to the spring banquet? And I wrote, Ken Ramey. And then I put, if yes, please carry the rose today. And I did a no-no. I picked one of the roses off the campus, which you weren't supposed to pick any of the roses. And I laid it on our air conditioning unit and, uh, and uh, went to bed and laughed and thought, oh, that'll be fun. And even if she says no, it was, uh, it was, it was a fun time, right? And so the next morning she wakes up and I knew her roommate and I had told her, hey, now listen, when she opens the window, when you open the, the curtains, you know, put in a good word for me because she really doesn't know who I am. And uh, we had just bumped in each other from time to time, had mutual friends, but we didn't know each other at all. And so she opens the window and, and she sees this and of course she's shocked and, she's, and, and so her roommate's like, so what are you going to do? Are you going to go? And she's like, I, I can't go because I don't even know this guy. And she goes, oh, he went to all this work and you need to say yes and so the goal was, I only saw Kelly once a week, and that was at chapel. And uh, so that was the only time our, our paths crossed. So the whole point was, you know, maybe, you know, she says, yes, she'll bring the rose, carry the rose today. I was going to see her in chapel. So we're there in chapel, me and my roommate, and, you know, we're up in the bleachers, and I'm getting a little nervous, you know, wondering what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, he says, there she is. She's got the rose. <laughs> so she walks by, and I said something really cheesy, like, is that a rose I see? And she's kind of like, you know, and uh, anyway, after that, we, we talked after chapel. I had a hard time concentrating that chapel, be honest, okay? I was just checking her out the whole time going, yes, she said yes. So we, we, we met up after her and we laughed about it, thought it was funny, and they said, well, we better go on a, better go on a, like, a, a date before this spring banquet so like we can really enjoy each other and get to know each other. So we went on a, another date and then we ended up going to the spring banquet and after that, uh, it, it definitely, we definitely started liking each other and uh, Anyway, after, I won't go into all the gory details about what a big jerk I was uh, over the, our, our dating time, about a year and a half of dating, on and off again, because of me, okay, because I didn't have a clue what I was doing, and uh, was very indecisive and scared and wasn't ready to make a commitment, and, you know, this was the biggest decision in my life, and I didn't want to mess it up, and so I kind of went back and forth, and finally, um, God grant, granted me a clear direction and peace and to, to Mary Kelly. And so I surprised her by going home for Thanksgiving. She, she knew I was coming, but uh, I, I, I decided to go a day or two early and I stayed at her sister's house and I woke up 2.33 in the morning, got that lipstick, I kept that lipstick and uh, I went to her house and I wrote on her bedroom window, Kelly, could I have the privilege of being your husband? Ken Ramey. And then I said, if yes, please wear the ring today. And I left a little ring on her windowsill and uh, put a little tape on her car that had this love song that I always wanted to, to play for her. And then, uh, so anyway, the, the plan was she was to wake up and see this thing, open her curtain, just like back at college, right? And oh, it's like deja vu. And right here I'm saying it. So anyway, she does that. And um, she gets in her car, goes to work, listens to the song. She's at work. And the next move is I send her flowers at work, right? She didn't know where I was, what I was doing. She didn't, she didn't even, she thought somebody, that I'd gotten somebody to do all this. And I was still coming the next day, right? So I send her flowers. And, uh, and I put this passage, I wrote a little note, 
right? And it was this passage about the springtime. Uh, you know, my beloved, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning the vines, the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land, the fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my, da- my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And then I wrote a note that said, meet me at this park at lunch, which is basically your lunch break. So I went to this park, and it was along this lake up in Washington, and I went out onto this dock, and there was a lifeguard stand, and I was out there sitting on the lifeguard stand um, when waiting for her to come. And sure enough, here comes her little gray Honda Accord hatchback, and she comes driving in to the parking lot, and I saw her get out, and she was kind of looking around, trying to figure out where I was, and then she saw me. And uh, so she came walking out on the dock, and I got down, and I walked out to her and met her, and uh, of course, she was all grins, and I was freaking out. And uh, I got down on one knee, and I had thought this through, because uh, I'll I'll have to tell you the backstory some other time, but uh, I just said to her, I said, Kelly, God has called me to be a pastor, and one of the the qualifications is that I be a one-woman man, and I want to ask you if you'll be that woman. Uh, will you marry me? And then I pulled out the real ring, but I didn't put the real ring on her window, so what do you think, I'm stupid? I didn't want to leave that out there all night, right? So I pulled out the real ring, and I put it on, and, and uh, anyway, the rest is history. But all that to say, I was, wonderful memories of that day, that whole proposal process, uh, this is the passage that God had brought to my mind that day, and I wanted to express that to her, and um, and, and so here we find this couple again um, after the curtain had closed uh, back in chapter 4, 5, and 6, right? There was this banquet, and, uh, and, and, and they were in a very intimate position in the banqueting hall, and it's like the curtain's closed on the scene, and it picks up here in verse, uh, in verse 8, and so we can assume that after the banquet, Solomon's um, courtiers uh, escorted the, the Shulamite safely back to her home country, or her home in the country, I should say. And the wedding day is now fast approaching, and their longing for each other increases in its intensity. And as she went about her normal business, she anticipated the return of her one true love, that he was going to come and, and, and get her, or at least come visit her. And so we see here in this next section um, a couple of encounters between Solomon and the Shulamite. One was a walk in springtime, and another was a dream at nighttime. And they provide us with some insight into what constitutes true love. Okay, and then the, I titled this passage "Finding True Love." Finding true love, uh, and and so I think a good way to look at this passage is is six tests of true love. In other words, how do you know? that you found your one true love. How do you know that? There's a lot of of, um, uh, fake love, right? Superficial love, false love um, out there in the world. There's going to be a lot of that going on Friday night, right? It's all going to be just about candy. It's all going to be about roses. It's going to be about cards. It's going to be about dinner. Um, it's It's going to be very superficial. It's not real. It's not true. So how do you know if you found the true love? What does true love look like? Well, let me just give you these, these tests really quickly. I, just, I worded them in, 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 Senate or, or in questions, and we'll look at, at them as we go through this text. Number one, are you genuinely excited to spend time together? Are you genuinely excited to spend time together? Number two, are you firmly resolved to work out your problems? Number three, are you mutually committed to one another? Number four, are you sexually attracted to one another? Number five, are you extremely saddened when, you're, when you have to be apart? And number six, are you patiently pledged to stay pure until you're married? And so let's look at these six tests of true love. First of all, are you genuinely excited to spend time together? Look at verse eight. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. 
And so here she was going about her normal business and then she hears him coming to visit her and she gets all excited and she likens him to this beautiful gazelle or noble stag who was leaping energetically and enthusiastically. He's excited too, making his way uh, to see her and and they had missed each other uh, and they couldn't get to each other fast enough. Verse 10, notice... uh, What he says here, I just read these verses. My beloved responded and said to me, and here's the guy saying, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. So it's springtime. And love was in the air, and so he comes to invite her to take a walk with him in the countryside. Uh, we know that falling, falling in love is in springtime is a well-known literary motif uh, in poetry. Uh, Tennyson, the, the British uh, poet, said this, quote, In the spring, a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. And so th- th- this was a, a case of spring fever here. There was a, a feeling of restlessness and excitement uh, at the beginning of spring where there was an increase in, in, in energy and vitality and, and particularly sexual appetite here. And, and, and I think one of the keys, this is a, something we can learn from this, one of the keys to, to cultivating a, a blossoming romance or to keep marital intimacy constantly in bloom is, is creative and spontaneous expressions of affection. And so here this guy comes and surprises her, Right? And says, hey, let's go. Let's go on a walk together. Let's go spend some time together. And so I think here we have the importance of dates, right? Talking about date nights and spending time together and gifts and surprises and adventures and things that that I think couples should do together as often as possible. Uh, Again, just to uh, keep that romance alive and fresh. And uh, notice how he talked to her gently and tenderly and likens her to a sweet dove that hid itself among the rocks. Verse 14, oh my dove, maybe a, a little pet name maybe, or, or maybe just likening her to a dove in the clefts of the rock, and the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. So here he's expressing a longing to be alone with her in a, in a secret place where he could gaze at, at the sight of her beautiful form and listen to the sound of her beautiful voice. And again, there was an obvious desire uh, and excitement to spend time together, um, unhurried, undistracted time. And so again, I think that's the first test of true love is, you know, is, 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 is you like really not really care if you get to spend time with your spouse, you know, or that person maybe that you're pursuing, wondering if this is the one I'm supposed to marry, and you can kind of take them or leave them, you know, or, you know, you're just kind of bored in their presence. Um, That's not a sign of true love, right? Uh, There needs to be an ongoing excitement, a genuine excitement to, to be together and to spend time together. Secondly, are you firmly resolved to work out your problems? Are you firmly resolved to work out your problems? Notice notice verse 15. He says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Now this verse has has given interpreters fits as to what in the world the foxes have to do. Um, What does the fox say, right? You're wondering what in the world... uh, Um, What is the foxes? What's up with the foxes, right? Well, most suggest that these little foxes represent those little things that that have a tendency to destroy relationships. And and you remember, she was a a shepherdess, and one of her jobs was to to shoo out the foxes out of the vineyards. And and so, um, you know, he's saying, hey, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. And so... uh, Either Solomon was exhorting the Shulamite or the Shulamite was exhorting the uh, Solomon. We're not sure, but they were exhorting one another to not let anything hinder the full expression and enjoyment of their love relationship. And so they were committed to not allowing a lack of self-control or selfishness or pride or jealousy or unforgiveness or you name it uh, to spoil their blossoming love. And so, again, I think true love... 
is, is evidenced by the fact that, that you are firmly resolved to work out your problems. If you truly love someone, right, you're going to work at it. You're not just going to have a problem and say, well, fine, you fix it. Or, you know what, it's not worth it to me. I'm not willing to invest in, in this relationship, right, uh, to, to, to roll up my sleeves and to dig in and, and do whatever it takes to make this work, right? That's true love. Uh, if you can just kind of punt that relationship and really not feel so bad about it because you're lazy or you're not willing to deal with sin, um, well, that's not true love, right? True love is, you know what, I'm not going anywhere, um, so you can be and do whatever you're going to be and do. I'm, gonna, I'm, st- I'm, I'm committed to this thing, and, and, and I'm, I am devoted and determined that we're going to resolve whatever issues come up. And uh, it's the old, uh, don't, use, don't even bring up the D word, right? You know what the D word is? Divorce, right? Divorce is not an option, right? So we're not even going to bring it up. We're not going to use that as a threat. We're not going to use it as, as an escape hatch. Uh, we're, we're firmly uh, resolved to work out our problems, whatever they are. Uh, number three, are you mutually committed to one another? Are you mutually committed to one another? He goes on here. She says this, my beloved is mine and I am his. That's one of the key expressions. If you remember one of the key verses there, uh, this, this statement is made a number of times in the Song of Songs. My beloved is mine and I am his. And so the, the idea here is that there's true love that's intertwined their hearts together to the point that they become one. Uh, this is not a one-way commitment. This is a, uh, they're both equally committed, mutually committed to one another. Genesis 2.24, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become what? One flesh, right? First Corinthians 7.4 talks about how uh, when you get married, uh, your body, your actual body is no longer your own, right? That your body uh, belongs to your spouse and their body belongs to you. Why? Because you become one. Uh, Paul told uh, the husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 that they were to treat their wives like their own bodies because in in essence they actually were, that that you become one. And so if you're not mutually committed to one another, right, you're actually hurting yourself. Um, And so again, there's a difference between, you know, this this is not a one-way street here. It's not a one-way relationship. There's a, my beloved is mine and I am his. There's a mutual commitment. Um, goes both ways, right? And um, honestly, that was part of the problem with me when I was dating Kelly, that I could tell that she was full-on committed to me, that she was convinced that I was the one that she was going to marry, and I didn't know. I, was, I wasn't sure what I was thinking, <laughs> And I wasn't, I wasn't fully on board, and, and, and there wasn't a mutual commitment. It was more of a one-way commitment for a time, and that's why I felt like it was just, this, this can't be true love. This is not the way God intended it to be. And so that was the first breakup of several, <laughs> um, on again, off again, uh, because of my poor leadership uh, in, that, in that relationship. But uh, I th- felt that initially that was a legitimate reason to back off and not continue to pursue the relationship if, if, if I couldn't be mutually committed to that relationship. Uh, number four, another test of true love, are you sexually attracted to one another? Uh, this is like, duh, uh, obviously, right? Uh, if, if you truly love someone, there's going to be an attraction there. But notice what she says here, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. And again, not to get into uh, detail here, uh, some commentators want to uh, turn every uh, mountain or every uh, lily into some body part necessarily. We don't know for sure. Uh, but the point is that, that obviously the woman here is expressing her longing for the consummation of their marriage. Uh, she's inviting him um, to, to be with her physically. And sexually. So she's just, again, expressing how she can't wait for their wedding day. 
which is, again, a very natural, uh, God-given attraction that God gives you. And, and it seems like when you, uh, when, when you are in a relationship with, a, with, with, with a, say, your fiancé, right, and as you're getting closer and closer to the wedding day, you've experienced intimacy on every level except the physical level, right? You've achieved spiritual union and mental union, emotional union, right? And the only thing that's getting left out of this thing is physical union. And yet that's supposed to wait until the wedding night, right? So there's this, there's this increasing sexual attraction that is very natural, um, of, in becoming one with your spouse. I love the way one commentator put this here. There seems, he admits that there's probably a double entendre here. He says there seems clearly to be a double entendre character. Um, in other words, that there, there's more going on here with some of this imagery of the mountains of Bether and, and the young stag and the lilies and, and all this stuff here. But he says it pulls a cloak over the details of the lover's lovemaking, a metaphor in the service of the mystery and sanctity of sex. And again, it's just the way that the, that the Spirit of God led Solomon in not to be graphic, um, but to kind of keep this whole thing veiled. It's like, okay, you don't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what, he, what they're talking about, right? But they don't go into detail. They, they leave it veiled. Um, so are you sexually attracted to one another? Number five, this is another test of true love. Are you extremely saddened when you have to be apart? Are you extremely saddened when you have to be apart? And then we move from this springtime scene, uh, this adventure, this romp in the springtime, to, uh, to this dream, maybe even a nightmare you could call it, uh, that this, this, the Shulamite has. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city and the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. The watchman who makes the rounds in the city found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely I had left him when I found him. I'd left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and to the room of her who conceived me. So I think what's going on here is that this woman was so preoccupied with Solomon during every waking hour that she couldn't get him off her mind to the point that she even dreamt about him at night. And most commentators say that this is a dream that's going on. This wasn't an actual thing that happened. This was, she was dreaming here. And uh, again, your subconscious mind tends to work on things at night, right? If you notice that, whatever you're anxious about, whatever you're thinking about a lot during the day, oftentimes you'll dream about those things. And so in her dream, she couldn't stand not having her lover by her side, and she was willing to risk life and limb to go find him. And this was not something you did as a young woman. You didn't get up in the middle of the night and go out into the city streets looking for anybody, right? You, you could get attacked, you could get raped, all sorts of bad things could happen to you. And, and even the watchmen are like, what are you doing out here? You, you, don't, you don't belong out here. And she says, I'm looking for my lover. I'm looking for the, the man whom I love. And at first she can't find him anywhere, but she persisted and eventually she found him and, and notice she wouldn't let him go. She, she grabbed a hold of him, wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him out of her sight. And it says that she took him to her mother's house where she was born. And I think that's a, a place of security, a place of intimacy. In fact, uh, in Genesis 24, 67 uh, Isaac brought Rebekah into Sarah's tent, and uh, that's where their marriage was consummated. And so, uh, again, this is a place of in intimacy here. But notice here um, that this woman, okay, is, is, is playing the aggressor. And I think that, obviously, we know God designed the man to be the leader and the woman to be the responder, right? We get that. It's pretty clear in Scripture Guys lead, women respond to a man's leadership. I already mentioned that a couple weeks ago, that, that why was this woman so turned on? It's because she was simply responding uh, to uh, this man's love, that he was adoring her and cherishing her and loving her, and she was just responding in like manner. 
But I think it's important that we make this point that it's not sinful or abnormal for a wife to be the aggressor when it comes to sexual intimacy. Uh, a husband always doesn't have to be the one to make the first move, okay? A wife can initiate sex if she desires it, and the husband should respond in like manner. And ladies, I would guarantee your husbands would appreciate it, right? If it wasn't always uh, them having to make the first move. And I think there's a good example here uh, for the wives, uh, the women here uh, in this. So again, the question is, are you extremely saddened when you have to be apart? Uh, I will never forget the first time I went to India. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I signed up for three weeks and uh, took a group of students with another guy, another staff guy, and uh, his name was Ron. And I'll never forget, I mean, Ron and I literally, by the second week, were crying together outside, away from the students, because we didn't want them to see us. Because we were, we were hating it so much, and we were missing our wives so bad, we were like, what do we get into? What are we doing here? And uh, I'll never forget, um, just uh, like, I got on that plane, and I just could not, it wasn't that I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I, it's like I couldn't get home fast enough. There was this aching, there was this longing, there was this missing. I'd never been apart from Kelly that long, and it was just like, it just, it just kind of hurt my heart. And, and there was just this missing, uh, you know, uh, just a sadness of just being uh, separated from the one that I loved. And I'd never, like I said, I'd never been apart from her that long ever since we, we were married. And so, again, that's a good sign, right? Uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, hopefully that's true. Uh, a good sign of true love there. If it's like, oh, great, I got to go back now. I, I really enjoyed my time away. I, I wish I could stay longer, right? Now I got to go back. Well, that's not a good sign about where your relationship's at, right? But if you can't wait to get home, can't wait to see each other, can't wait to hug each other and kiss each other and catch up with one another, right? Um, that's, a, that's a good sign. And then lastly here, and this is really important, I think a sign of true love, a test of true love, and this is particularly important for you young people, and I'm so glad we have a good number of college students here on Wednesday night to hear this series, but this particularly applies to you. This is true love. Are you patiently pledged to stay pure until you're married? Are you patiently pledged to stay pure until you're married? I'm just going to tell it, say it like it is. That, that, that ladies, if some guy is trying to, trying to get you in bed, okay, and he's saying, oh, but I love you so much, will you go to bed with me? Guess what? He doesn't love you. Why? Because that's not true love. That's selfish love. That's lust. He's trying to get something that he wants from you. That's not true love. True love, if he truly loves you, he's going to protect your purity. And he's going to guard you, and he's going to keep a safe distance from you. He's going to cherish that, and he's never going to push you to do something that would be uh, premature or inappropriate. Uh, that's true love. Um, again, this is the second of, of three appeals that this woman makes to her girlfriends, her bridesmaids. We said the background singers, the daughters of Jerusalem, right? That they're kind of there watching this whole thing go down. And so she interacts with them from time to time. And what she says here, verse eight, I adjure, verse five, excuse me, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. So she's pleading with them to keep, to, to, to stay sexually pure, um, to keep sexual activity in check until it can be fulfilled righteously. You say, what is righteously? Huh? What is a righteous outlet uh, for our sexual desires? It's with the right person at the right time, and the right person is your spouse, and the right time is when you're married. That's a righteous expression of your God-given sexual desires. And so, again, this is a, this is a great, great application for anyone looking and longing for true love. Uh, you need to wait patiently for God to bring the right person at the right time. And in the meantime, you just need to focus on just you being the right person. You be the right person um, that's ready to be married. And, and don't be anxious, you know, like, what if I don't get married? Right? That's something that young people say, what if I don't get married? 
Or, or what, if, what if God makes me marry somebody that I don't, that, that, that's ugly? You know, it's so funny. I, sometimes you have these conversations with young people. What if God makes me marry somebody that I don't even like? I'm like, what? That's not going to happen. Trust me. Um, you'll like them, okay? You'll think they're really cute. They're really good looking, and, and you'll enjoy their company. Or, or what, if, what if the person that I thought I was supposed to marry, like, moves away? thousands of miles away and what happens if they like meet somebody else and 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 then I'll lose them and and well guess what if God if it's God's will right for you to get married to that person nothing is going to stop that from happening I don't care how many million miles are between you how many other relationships happen uh, if God wants you to marry that person you're going to marry that person nothing to worry about your focus needs to be on God's will for your life which includes showing sexual restraint and self-control like the two lovers exercised here in the Song of Songs. Even though things are kind of heating up here and you're like, whoa, this thing's getting a little, a little steamy here, they're holding themselves off until the wedding, which is next week, by the way, chapter 3, verse 6, we, we come to their wedding. Uh, and so what are some of the principles that I could share with you? Of course, First Thessalonians chapter... Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is, is a great passage. Uh, what is God's will for us? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. So listen, when someone comes to know Christ, their attitude towards sex changes, and so there does their ability to control their sexual desires, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you, right? Uh, God had done a, an amazing work in the Corinthian believers. Uh, in Galatians, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and the last one being what? Love, joy, peace, patience, yeah, self-control, right? Fruit of the Spirit. And so self-control, I think, is the key to staying sexually pure. Um, self-control and sex are inseparable. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 7 how he talks about, Paul says, listen, um, uh, you know, uh, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 9, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So you see the connection between um, self-control and sex, right? It, it's key. Um, and, and I've often asked myself as a youth pastor, all the years I was a youth, in youth ministry, I thought, why in the world would God give us such strong desires for sex in our early teen years, knowing full well that most of us wouldn't be able to have those desires fulfilled righteously until we were in our 20s or 30s when we got married. Why would God do that to us? That seems like a dirty trick. That seems mean, right? Why, why didn't it happen like the, the, the day you get married, like at your wedding ceremony, all of a sudden he gave you that desire, right? That would make more sense to me. If I was God, right, I'd be like, okay, I'm not even going to give you that desire until your wedding night. Well, that's not happening, right? 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, right? You begin having these, these desires, these urges. Why? I think it was because he wanted us to learn to have what? Self-control. And the pattern of purity. Listen, young people, this is so important. And I guarantee you that any adult here that's married will, will testify to the truth of this, that the pattern of purity that you set before you're married will be the pattern of purity you keep after you're married. You don't think that just getting married is going to solve all your sexual temptation issues, okay? It won't, okay? Uh, you're still going to have to exercise self-control. And so if you struggle with sexual temptation before you're married, you're going to struggle with it after you get married. And so, again, you're setting the pace right now, um, and, and you're setting, really, you're, you're, um, basically who you are today is who you're going to be tomorrow, right? We know that principle. So I think it's important that you, again, exercise self-control. 
And then once you get married, you're free to go for it. And it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it, you will feel like you're sinning on your honeymoon. I guarantee you, young people, you'll feel like you're sinning, okay? Because like your whole life, it's no, 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 wait, 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 wait. And all of a sudden, like one day, and now, now it's okay. So you went from being sinful on Friday, and now it's God-honoring, God-glorifying on Saturday. What's up with that? That's the way God designed it. And, um, and again, I've said this before, it's totally worth the wait. And that's what essentially the Shulamite is doing here. She's, again, in this scene, um, the scene is uh, steaming up here again. She's, she's taken him into her mother's house, into the room of her, con- uh, of her who conceived me. And then it's like, the blinds close, right? The, the curtain closed. Scene ends, all right? And we're left with our sanctified imagination, right? Um, and then she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse her awakened love until she pleases. It's kind of like she sticks her head out of the bedroom window, right? And, and she, she says, hey, girls, wait for this. Keep yourself pure until marriage. Promise? Promise me? Promise me you're going to wait. That's basically what he, she's, she's doing here. And uh, I don't know, I don't think you guys will probably remember um, back in the 80s, there was a big campaign called True Love Waits. Remember that? True Love Waits. That's it. You want to know what true love is, right? This we're talking about finding true love. What, what is a test of true love? True love waits. It waits. Why? Well, first of all, because there's consequences of not waiting, uh, which I think you're fully aware of. But I think more importantly, there's all these blessings for waiting. I mean, there's a reason why it's fun to open Christmas presents, right, on Christmas morning, right? It's fun to look forward to Christmas Day, right? I mean, if you open your presents on Thanksgiving, right, your Christmas presents on I mean, it's like, what do you, what's there to look forward to? You know, between Thanksgiving and, and, and Christmas, that's just kind of, that just stinks, right? You, you opened up your presents before they were, before you should have. And so, uh, again, it's just a, a good thing to, d- d- delayed gratification. Something we're not real good at in our culture today, are we? Delayed gratification, we want everything now, instantly. And uh, there's lots to say for delayed gratification. So, um, again, Great little passage here. What are the tests of true love? I would encourage you young people to keep these in your mind as you're developing relationships with people of the opposite sex to say, hey, make sure this is true love, not just superficial, selfish, fleshly love. This is true love going on here. This is the real deal. Um, and, and hey, in your marriage, evaluate your marriage and uh, see if this is, these things are true of your marriage. Um, that there is actually true love going on. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this book and, again, how uh, interesting it is and how uh, relevant it is, how helpful it is. I just pray, Lord, that you would make application of this uh, to all of our hearts tonight. Lord, I don't know where uh, everyone is um, in this room tonight, but I just know that your word never returns void but it always accomplishes its purpose for which it's sent forth. And I believe that you have us in this book for this season um, in our lives as a church and here on Wednesday nights. And so we just ask that you would uh, just accomplish your work through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.